scripture this morning is from John chapter 21, really to the end of the book, the end of the book of John. Verse 21, or sorry, chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because they were so many, there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, with fish on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the books that are written. 
And Lord, may it be more than sufficient for the hunger and thirst in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you were here on Easter, this passage would feel familiar. One of the things that would feel familiar about it is the way it starts off. It starts off very similar to the way the Easter passage started off. It starts off in darkness, and it starts off in scarcity. So you may remember Mary, it's still dark when she's around the tombs, and she's looking for something that's not there. She's looking for the body of Jesus. Now we find the disciples, and the disciples are fishing. It's dark, it's not yet daybreak, and they find nothing. They find no fish. Darkness and scarcity. And you might be wondering, I thought we went through this. I thought we we got past the darkness. I thought we were in the light. I thought now we have all the abundance of the resurrection. I thought that's what we were talking about now. Why are we back there? That was only a chapter ago. The resurrection is not a light switch. It's not a magic wand. It's not a big, plump fairy godmother with little wings tapping us and saying, you're fixed, you're fixed, you're fixed. It's not a holy plumber that takes care of everything. The resurrection is a new reality that we're all trying to live into. Easter is a noun, but it can also be a verb, something that God does in us, Eastering in us as Gerard Manley Hopkins put it. We are, after all, meant to practice resurrection. You may have seen that somewhere uh, around here, somewhere. It's right there, surprise. Um, This is another day of practicing the resurrection. And just as at the beginning of creation, even, where everything was formless and void and there was darkness over the face of the deep, so now we have darkness over the face of the waters where the disciples are and their lives are formless and without purpose. Now, I don't think it was wrong for them to go fishing. I don't think that they were deliberately disobeying or anything like that because, you know what, like, the Baptist church at the time wasn't hiring. There weren't, like, pastor jobs, you know, so they they did have to, like, still fish and eat and, you know, uh, the resurrection did not change the, the need to eat. Um, But we do get enough to have a sense that the disciples are in need of something. They are uh, in, in a place of scarcity and in a place of darkness. And Jesus is going to bring light and abundance. There's two parts to this, and uh, it might feel like a lot, but you know what? That's abundance. So most, most sermons have three points. I'm going to have like five. And, and that, that's just a sign of the abundance, okay? Um, uh, two parts to this. The first is really about the group of disciples and, and how they go into abundance. And then the second part is going to be specific to Peter, to an individual. And we're going we're gonna, to, so we're going to try to understand this both as a community and then also as individuals. Um, and it says it's gonna, we're going to see how Jesus reveals himself. So John says this is how he revealed himself to his disciples. And the one thing you'll find is never once in this passage did they ever recognize him with their sight. They never see him. 
in the whole passage. They never see him, which is bizarre. But but the but the point is is they're trying to they're speaking to us guys like this is to us. This is for us who don't like physically see Jesus all the time. How are we going to recognize him? Well, the first way we're going to recognize him is is shown in this in this moment where Jesus is on the shore. They don't recognize him, but he says, "Try on the other side of the boat." They try on the other side of the boat, and where they've had scarcity all night, all of a sudden they have an abundance of fish. And so the first way we walk into Jesus' abundance is through obedience. Obedience. Um, obedience is not super popular among Protestants. Uh, we're more into like the grace, kind of do what you want sort of thing. Um, but uh, it, it, here it is obedience to the words of Jesus is how they recognize him. Because the response to this is the beloved disciple who says, it is the Lord. I know it. I know it is the Lord. Because we did that, and then that happened, it's got to be the Lord. Obedience. Jesus has given us a lot of things. And he says, if you walk in my commandments, you will, you will show your love for me. Obedient to what? Well, he's told us a lot of things. Um, love your enemies. Keep your promises. Anyone who's been married for a long time and, and, and obe- obeyed Jesus in staying married for a long time knows that there's a surprising abundance there. It could be with friendships too, a long lasting friendship that you stick with over, over time. All of a sudden there's an abundance that you never imagined. Um, A friend of mine, you know, he, let's just be honest, he didn't like church. He didn't like Sunday morning church. He didn't like the songs, he didn't like the preaching. We were friends, so it wasn't personal. Um, But he just didn't, like he didn't connect with it. And, uh, but one thing he did strictly all the time is whenever there was an opportunity to serve, especially serving people experiencing homelessness, he was there every time. And one day I asked him about it. So why is this such a big thing for you? He said, well, Jesus told us to do it. I figure I'm going to do it. See what happens. He didn't have like a heart for the poor. Uh, He didn't really like have a special sort of ability there. Uh, Dad was a mechanic. Uh, He was a mechanic. Uh, kind of an engineer kind of guy, but Jesus told him to do it, and so he did it. And he said he encountered Jesus in that work, in no other way. It was through that obedience that he experienced the abundance of Jesus's presence. So that's the first way, obedience. Second thing that happens is um, the beloved disciple leans over to Peter and says, hey, Peter, it's the Lord. And then Peter believes and then dives into the water and goes after Jesus on the beach. So the second way is testimony. First way is obedience. Second way is we listen to what other people have to say. Sometimes we like we just don't get it. Sometimes we don't connect. Sometimes we're not having a direct connection. Maybe a sermon, maybe a book. You know, somebody's like, oh, you got to read this book. This will change your life. And you read it and you think, nope, that's boring. And so you're not having this direct connection that other people are having, but sometimes a testimony from somebody else and the abundance that they're experiencing can rub off on you. Um, half of you might be thinking of like one person. I know I always think of Gene, and I'm going to single Gene out when this happens, because Gene has a kind of an amazing testimony of what happened to him when he had a bone marrow transplant. Yes, he was physically healed, but he'll be happy to tell you, and you need to hear it, his soul was healed as well. He became a new person, and he encountered Jesus in a way that he'd never encountered him before. 
that has affected me. That has, that has brought me into Jesus' abundance in a way that I would not be able to otherwise. It might be that that's what you need. Hear it from somebody else. It's not happening to you. Listen to somebody else's story of encountering Jesus. That's what Peter does. Peter trusts the beloved disciple and then dives in after Jesus. So that's the second way. Here's the third. We're not even on the last one. It's just all abundance this morning. Okay. Um, the, third, the third is the abundance that happens on the beach. So they, they all go ashore. Peter, of course, is ahead of them. They all finally come ashore with doing all the work. And, um, and there's breakfast. There's breakfast on the shore. Jesus is the cook. He's the host. And he's the server. He says... Um, why don't you bring your catch ashore? And so Peter brings the catch. Uh, but he doesn't want any of that fish for the breakfast. He's taking care of all of it. They contribute nothing to the feast. It's all Jesus feeding them. Server, host, cook. Now there's this really strange section here that, you know, normally we don't, you know, we, we don't want to get too into the weeds, but it's really important. Um, it says, they dared not ask who he was because they knew it was the Lord. Well, you don't need to ask if you're like two feet away and you just see him. Look at, you know, he's got the long hair and the beard. Duh, it's Jesus. Um, but they actually, that's the point of this whole passage is not to focus on visual recognition. They're not visually recognizing him, but they know in their bones that it's Jesus. And that's what John, the writer, is trying to show us. He's saying this is possible. You don't have to visually recognize Jesus to know the Lord is present. And so they do. They know that the Lord is present because who else would invite them to a meal like this? Who else would be cook, host, server than Jesus? This is just exactly the kind of thing Jesus would do. Of all the ways this God wants to be with us, ultimately it's not as a distant deity far off somewhere. This God does not want to be um, our divine fixer. He does not want to be our genie. He does not want to be our Santa Claus. He also doesn't want to be an angry parent. And he doesn't want to be an ineffable, numinous cloud. This God wants to be someone who feasts with us at a table. And this is always who God has wanted to be with us. In Exodus, you know, Exodus, we, Exodus has this reputation of being like, you know, God's way up on the mountain and like everybody else is way down here and there's like thunder and lightning and it's terrifying. But even in there, in chapter 24, there's this wonderful verse that says some of the people who went up to the top of the mountain saw God and did eat and drink. Exodus 24, 11. This is always who God has wanted to be. Even in the garden, he just wanted to feast, have fellowship with these people. And here, he's brought it together again. He's brought them to the table again. And he will bring us to the table forever in the, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think this way of meeting God is perhaps the most difficult way to meet God. It's kind of nice to think of God as distant, 
because then we know, you know, we can sort of just forget about him for a little while. We can sort of think of him as a cloud or, or like a parent who lives across the country. You know, we only need to call him like once a month. And then, you know, and then we like, we do our thing, they do their thing, and you know, everybody's okay. But that is not the kind of God this is. This God, this God really wants to be with us. And it can be a little off-putting, especially if you're Peter. And the reason it's off-putting for Peter is because Peter has not dealt with some stuff. It's not dealt. So now we're going to move from the community to the individual and Peter's situation. Do you remember what Peter's situation is? Peter's situation is that, um, well, Jesus predicted that he was going to deny him. And he just, like, straight up, bald-faced, denied him. And even when Jesus predicted he'd do it, you know, Peter, like, clutched his pearls, and he was like, I would never do such a thing. And he, he still did it. He still did it, and, he, and he was, it was, like, three times. Like, he could have, like, denied him once, and then, like, okay, okay, I know him. But, like, three times, just a solid denial of Jesus. And now he's invited to this meal on the beach. It's one thing to be invited. It's another thing to actually participate in a meal like that when you know you have this between you and Jesus. You can't just eat as though nothing happened. Peter's got to deal with it. But crucially, it's Peter who needs to deal with it and not the Lord. Crucially, Peter has been invited to breakfast before the even restoration happens. Not only is he not prohibited from the meal, but it may be that Peter needs the meal in order to be restored. See the order? It's really important to get the order here. We're not first saying, okay, Peter, you got some cleaning up to do before you can eat with Jesus. It's the opposite. And, and for those of you who are sort of learning about Peak and trying to understand what Peak is about, that's why we're sort of radically open about our communion table. Because we think that sometimes in order to get to the table, you need the meal. You know what I'm saying? And in order for Peter to get restored, I, I think he probably needed that meal to get to where he needed to be. We're not going to put up roadblocks so people can, you know, like prove themselves worthy enough to get to the meal. That seems pretty much the opposite of what Jesus has going on. The conversation is designed to restore Peter, not to appease God. They sit around a charcoal fire. That's the exact same fire that Peter sat around when he denied Jesus, a charcoal fire. Um, and Jesus asks him, asks him the same number of questions as he denied him. So he asks him three questions. He denied him three times. Again, the relationship is not what's at stake here. Jesus has overcome any threat to meeting with us or Peter at the table. And so this is about Peter restoring Peter's own self, healing him to be his true self in relationship to God. Easter has happened, but Easter has not happened in Peter's own heart. So yes, Jesus walks him back over the denial. He almost makes him sort of retrace the steps. We would like to ignore the past. We'd like to ignore the things. We'd like to just move on. We'd like to forgive and forget, that kind of thing. 
um, but there must be a remembrance. There must be a remembrance. And by Jesus bringing Peter through those three questions, he brings him to a remembrance of the three times that he denied him. And then he brings him to something else, which is sort of surprising. He brings him to grief. He brings him to grief. He feels sad. He feels bad. He brings him to grief. Grief over what? Grief over what he did to his dearest friend and mentor. Grief over not being able to help. Over not being with Jesus to the end and not supporting the others. Grief that he failed. This is a good grief. And it's important here to contrast grief with shame. Shame is uh, Peter replaying that night in his mind forever. You know, just like, just like turning on the tape and going back over it and be like, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? That's shame. Grief is different. Grief brings it all to an end so that Peter can go on to do what God has called him to do, which is to what? To feed the sheep. It is astonishing that Jesus says, you know, you're not exactly qualified, but I want you to feed my sheep. But it may be that Peter's healing, brokenness, healing, this process of grieving, is the very thing that qualifies him to feed the sheep in the first place. It may be that the joint that is repaired here is stronger than it was before. It may be much like this communion cup that's been repaired with gold and has somehow become more beautiful than what it was before it was broken. It may be. And then this book ends. This book ends in abundance. There was much more that happened, but we don't need it. You've got plenty. Now believe in God. <laughs> That's how the book ends. And this is how we practice resurrection. We practice through obedience. We practice through hearing the testimonies of others. We practice by feasting at the table with God. And if anything keeps us from abundance, it's not going to be God. It's going to be ourselves. And so God even invites us to grieve our own reluctance, our own betrayals, so that we can feast with him and do the things that he has called us to do. I can't think of a better way to end this than with something, uh, a brief poem written by a guy named George Herbert called Love, and it's actually Love with three in the parentheses because he used the same title two other times. And so now it's just Love Three. Um, and so there's two, there's two people in this poem. There's, we, we assume it's George. And then there's God. Uh, but God's name in this poem is Love. And so it's sort of a conversation between the two of them. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here? Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, 
Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Amen. Lord, thank you for inviting us to the table. Thanks for uh, not letting us cook, not letting us host, inviting us to feast. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.